I think probably everybody at this table's belief was that eventually people are going to get tired of his shtick, nope. his act. Because it, it's like an act. It's not like an act. It is an act. It's a shtick. But... You can tell you're retired from politics, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> the, right. Because I'm not... Eight, isn't no, no, one's, no one's paying me to kiss Donald Trump's ass anymore. Seated around a table inside the Skull Room at the Civil Cigar Lounge in Northwest Washington, D.C., four of the losing Republican campaign managers from 2016. And you couldn't pay me, you couldn't pay me enough to kiss Donald Trump's ass. And I'm Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. This is Off Message. This 2020 campaign for the presidency is unlike anything we've ever seen, with 23 Democrats seeking the party's nomination and the right to challenge President Trump next November. And there's a very small universe of individuals who understand what it's like to run in that environment, to have President Trump looming over the proceedings, to have upwards of 20 people competing for a party's presidential nomination, to be testing the old political tactics against a new social media-driven political environment. So what we were able to do was bring together four of the only people on earth who have done this before, which is to try and fight for a party's presidential nomination with upwards of 20 people in the race, all competing in the shadow of Donald J. Trump. So we had Jeff Rowe. Jeff Rowe from Brookfield, Missouri. I managed Ted Cruz's race for president. We had Beth Hansen. I uh, live in Columbus, Ohio. I managed John Kasich's race for president in 2016. We had Terry Sullivan. I managed uh, Marco Rubio's presidential campaign in 2016. I uh, got out of the political candidate business uh, when I lost to a reality TV star. And we had Danny Diaz. Uh, I ran Jeb Bush's campaign for president. It seems as though campaigns candidates, certainly parties, are always fighting the last war. And we're seeing a little bit of that right now with the Democratic National Committee fighting a war that many felt was lost by the Republican National Committee back in 2016, which is this question of how do you possibly regulate and manage a primary field for president that has a historic number of candidates? How do you, as campaign managers four years ago at this time, now observing this 2020 Democratic process and with the DNC implementing some new rules governing the debates, governing the superdelegates. When you look at how uh, the, the DNC chairman, Tom Perez, is attempting to learn from the mistakes made by Reince Priebus, the RNC chair, do you think that they will be effective or are you looking at some potentially unintended consequences, the same sort of unintended consequences that came back to bite the RNC four years ago? When you have uh, an arbitrary criteria that you're putting in, it might seem like a good idea now, but then after June and after July, and you're stuck with the five or six candidates that you have, you might rethink that, but by then it's too late. Part of running any campaign like this is it is an arduous ordeal. It is um, town halls, and it is donor meetings, and it is it and it tests those people who are going to be good at this. And 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 I'm just not sure if cutting the field by that much that early on is actually going to be the best thing for them. It, it's remarkable. I have not heard a lot of people talk about this, but how intrusive the consequences of their decisions on what their measurements are to get into the debates. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're telling somebody how much prospecting email they have to do, when your entire campaign is based on money management, that's a really intrusive trigger 
that also ratchets up what I think they're trying to avoid, which is their lurch left. It incentivizes that. Mm-hmm. And so the candidates that otherwise would be talking about, you know, well, I'm a capitalist, but I understand that we need to protect, you know, the underprivileged. And to now they just have to go full blown or they will be punished immediately on email and Facebook and the other ways that they traditionally raise money. If they're trying to incentivize a mainstream nominee, which it seems to me that they're trying to do, I think they're going about it really the wrong way. And to Beth's point about this being a marathon and not a sprint, you think back on the Republican side, the winner of the Iowa caucuses in 08 and 12, respectively, Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, these guys were running in the single digits almost all the way until the final six to eight week stretch when they really started to take off. You're not going to necessarily be able to see anybody fly way below the radar for the next eight months and then pop in December uh, because they're not going to be able to get on the debate stage if they're at two or three percent and they're not getting the unique contributions online. Four years ago today, Bush is at 24 in Iowa and and Trump was at one, Cruz was Mm -hmm. at four, Kasich I think it was at two, Rubio was at five or six. Much different fields. This marathon and poison yourself for the for the momentum that you need in the burst. I think what they've done with the proportional delegates is interesting. The removal mostly on the first ballot of super delegates is they've incentivized effectively a forty five day campaign. And you can't if a candidate is requ- these requirements that they put a candidate can't lay and build a framework to exercise a campaign to then have momentum at the right time because they'll be washed out because of the process, because of what the requirements are from funding. If you take, if you, if you're not, if you have 120,000 donors and you've been cranking on it for, for six months and you're 15,000 unique donors away from making the next debate stage, as we know, that's 80, 90 grand that you might not have. So now you're sacrificing staff, for online fundraising, and, and they are just, I, I think they're really incentivizing mm-hmm. the wrong I thing. Think, I think it's a really smart point uh, that Jeff's making, and which pains me to say. <laughs> but I think in addition to that, it's not just that they're making these campaigns contort themselves financially. It's that they're making them contort themselves on issues. It means the more of a bomb thrower you can be, the the more likely are you to get you know, hits online and the more dollars you're going to raise. You need those viral moments, yeah, right? Yeah, you need those viral moments. And so you're going to become, you know, more and more extreme in what you're saying in order to try to capture that. And so to his point, you're going to run further to the left so by it, doing that. It's almost counterintuitive. So you're chasing those very things that are going to make it more difficult for you to be a good general election candidate you, because you're going to be incentivized to chase those things to be able to continue to participate. Right. So we're sitting here talking in mid-June uh, in the run-up to this first doubleheader of Democratic debates down in Miami at the end of the month. I'm wondering, the four of you must recall vividly walking into Quicken Loans Arena back in August of 2015 for that first Republican presidential debate. And and I remember so clearly that uh, right behind Reince Priebus was Steven Tyler and Aerosmith. Right. Because they right. were all, because even yeah. those guys, <laughs> wanted to see the show, right? Everybody's all fired up. What are your, I want to go around here, and Beth, we'll start mm-hmm. with you. What are your most vivid memories of that night? Because from the opening question, when Brett Baer asked, is anybody here you know, going to rule out an independent run, and, and Trump is the only one who, who raises his hand, that debate really set the tone in so many ways for the entire primary mm-hmm. season. So what was your most vivid memory from that evening? 
we had announced on July 21. So gosh, we were only two or three weeks into this race. You know, I think that my most vivid memory is the fact that we really felt like we had a home team hometown crowd. So it was Cleveland. And he had just, uh, you know, uh, nine months before come off of a big uh, reelection victory um, uh, in his uh, 2014 uh, reelected as governor. So I really felt like we had a home team and we uh, home crowd there. So we were very optimistic, very positive. We knew a lot of people that were uh, in the arena. So that that was my recollection of that debate. Danny? Look, the first debate in part is an introduction. And um, you know that there are going to be a series of them. And so you want to introduce your candidate, right, uh, number one. Number two is you want to play your candidate's strengths at all times. That's particularly true kind of in an introduction. Um, and third, um, you know, w- when you run um, a race such as this, you have kind of a theory of your race, okay? And you have to match up your conduct and your actions against that theory. Terry? I think for us, we were trying to walk this fine line because up until that point, we were very much seen as the, as the candidate who could give inspirational speeches and was expected to shine at the debates. But at the same time, our campaign strategy, for better or worse, was to try to fly as much beneath the radar as humanly possible, to not put a huge bullseye on us, to not run out there on day one and become the front runner because, gee, we're really smart. We said no one can maintain the front runner status for that entire time. So what was running through your head is do well, you know, meet expectations, do not beat expectations and don't don't break away. It was was kind of a weird kind of way to walk into it. But we weren't looking for a breakaway moment. We were looking to check the box, keep our head down and keep moving. Jeff, I think at this stage of the campaign and I think the Democrats will fall into this. Maybe maybe somebody will have a moment against Biden. They'd be smart to do that. He's starting to drop if they want to bring him all the way down. They ought to. We call it in our campaign rub paint, you know, a NASCAR reference, kind of trade a little paint in the corners. That was in our case. We were playing golf at that time. At that time, we're just like right down the fairway, play your own game. There's no Greco-Roman wrestling right now. We're not going to trade any paint, let anything pass. You have seven and a half minutes of actually speaking. And so be a movement, strong, conservative, and just play your lane and try not to make any mistakes or any gaps. And we almost didn't make the debate stage. If we got relegated to the second debate, to the second night, Ted was going to drop out. It's so interesting, though, to hear you and Terry talking, Jeff, about this idea that it's slow and steady in that first debate. You don't want to get out in front and put that bullseye on your back. But these Democrats aren't going to have that luxury because of what you all were saying a minute ago is that this this thing by design is going to winnow pretty quickly. So here's my question. Heading into these first Democratic debates, who do you all think has— the most pressure on them to perform? Because obviously, look, we can talk about a field of 20-plus candidates all day, but really, if we're being realistic, as of today, it only looks like maybe six or seven, if we're being generous, of these folks are actually viable at this point, barring something really unexpected, which could, of course, happen in Miami. When you're turning on the television set for for those debates, June 26th, June 27th, down in Miami, who do you think has the most to gain, most to lose in those debates? I think there are two. Uh, and it's Mayor Pete, whose name I can't pronounce his last name, and and it's uh, Beto, because those two are the ones that are the most a creation of the media, of the DC media culture, and so if they can't meet expectations, it's the end of them. 
It's the end of him. Whereas Biden could totally crap the bed, but he's still going to make debates. He's still going to, he can be the John, worst case scenario, he does terrible. He can eventually become the John McCain, you know, happy warrior and come back. The ones who need this because they are, it's, it's so hyped, are, are Beto and, or Beto or however the hell he, Robert, Bob. Robert Francis. Bob from El Paso. Um, and, uh, you know, Mayor Pete, who's this super sexy thing in D.C. What do you think, Beth? Um, I, I completely agree with that. And I might put somebody like Kamala Harris in there. These are people who people don't know a lot about. People know something about Biden. They know something about Sanders. They think they know something about Warren. They know something about those people. It's these other people where, oh, I think I like that person. Let me let me see. Those are the people who are going to have to come out of here. Make that first impression. Yeah, they're going to have to make that first impression. Danny, what do you say? I mean, I think it's the people who are worried about making it through the summer right. and being on the stage in the fall. Because I think it's pretty clear that Sanders is going to be on the stage. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty clear that Biden's going to be on the stage. And I think if you're like uh, Kamala or Elizabeth Warren, you're kind of like a, a really good rebounder in a basketball game. You got to hang around the hoop and mm-hmm. you got to get rebounds. You got to pick up change and make points. So from my perspective, um, you know, they're going to be in the game and they're going to watch what the people that are chasing are doing. But I think it's the folks um, that aren't going to make the stage in September for the reasons we delineated earlier that the criteria is too stringent. They need to change the game for themselves so that they're still viable. I mean, they're hoping just to make it until the early states, and then it's a totally different game on March 3rd. And and look, it's an expectations game more than anything else. At the end Mm -hmm. of the day, a perfect example, we finish third in Iowa. We the best third place finish in America. Right. Right. Yeah. No, no, we no, yeah. but hold on though. It wasn't on accident, but we finished third in Iowa and we got a ridiculous amount of press. We got more press than than first or second did. Three, two, one. Right. Three, two, one. And and legitimately I broke that story. And, and so <laughs> but the point is is that that it was about expectations. We purpose God bless you. One of the smartest guys doing doing the organization, the grassroots around, but we knew that all we had to do was beat expectations, and oh, we got all this shit constantly kicked out. I got the crap kicked out of me because I told Jonathan Martin uh, in a New York Times story that look, we get more earned media impression. You probably push that. Yeah, I mean, that so was a the, lovely, the, <laughs> but no, earn more earned media impressions in Iowa by by being on the set of Fox and Friends. Than by being in Des Moines, which you ain't wrong about, by the way. Yeah, and guess, guess what? Really, really Ankeny. Ankeny, true story. And <laughs> guess what? Guess who else figured out that strategy better than the rest of us? Trump. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I will tell you, the media's absolute fixation on process hasn't lessened; it's only increased. And it's bizarre and amazing to watch from the sidelines where I'm at. It's not whether Joe Biden cares about you know roe v wade or the hyde amendment or if he's pro-life or pro-choice it's the process of how he answered the question is about the process it's never about the issue or the well and 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 
to follow on that, as we sit here and are talking about the debates, we're talking about the process of the debates. At the end of the day, is this the best way? And I'm not saying I have a better idea, but my God, are the debates really the best way? Those debates with 11 people on the stage, were they really a good way to indicate who's going to be a good leader of this country? I mean, at some point, we have to ask ourselves that question. Especially when the debates are dominated by quips about Rosie O'Donnell. But, but there's a point. Can you, debate, uh, can you uh, exceed expectation? How do you get noticed in a field of 11? What do you need to say? How do I break out? And at some point, I think we have to ask ourselves, is this the best way? And I'm not saying I know another way, but is that the best way to do it? Jeff, get your two cents on this. Uh, most to lose in these first Democratic debates. Who are you watching? I hate to agree with Terry, but I owe him one. Um, Robert Francis, of course, is it's, it, people that reinforce their trend line. So if, if Robert Francis has a bad night, that's a bad, that's real bad. It reinforces the trend line where he starts at 11, he ends up at four. He's a two nationally. Like he's got a. Iowa poll recently he has is to brutal. Fix it. He's got to fix it. Um, Mayor Pete, same thing, reinforces trend line up. He's gone from nothing to, to 13 in Iowa, I think it was, and eight nationally. But I think there's another contingent, which I think as you were describing Kamala. Um, she's she's kind of the best political athlete in the field. She seems to have have the diversity of being able to speak to donors, be able to speak to the press, be able to speak to grassroots. She's got a core competency uh, around an issue. She has experience. I, in my in my, every, all of us had great candidates, but Marco was the best natural political athlete in the field. I think he had a lot so to prove. It's my fault we lost? I mean, it just that's, what it, that's, what it, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> it sounds like to me. Better candidate the campaign. Like <laughs> so here's what I want to know. When I was starting off covering politics as a pup, a wise man once told me that you need the three M's to win a campaign. You need the money, you need the message, and you need the muscle. And it occurs to me that when we watched 2016 unfold, look, some of your campaigns had two of the three, Donald Trump, I don't know, was was a candidate who, by anybody's traditional metric, he certainly wasn't flying around doing coastal fundraisers. Yeah, right. You <laughs> the need impressions. That's it. All you need is the media impressions, earned or paid, and we determined we, we learned up positive that, or negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't positive or negative. That didn't matter. Just the Never raw does. impressions on the target universe. But here's here's my question. So we saw Trump overturn that traditional orthodoxy in 2016 by just this sort of sheer force of Trump. As big as this primary field is on the Democratic side, there is not a Trump. And so I'm wondering, do you expect a return? Not yet. Right, exactly. But do you expect a return to those more traditional guidelines of a campaign where you need those three M's? Or do you think that that's gone for good? Are we through the looking glass now and nothing's going to ever be the same? I think this is right. At this stage in the race for us, there were just over a dozen people. And at this stage in the race for them, there are two dozen people. So some of this criteria is, is exacerbated. It's made even more important, right? The money, the organization. I mean, you're divvying up a small number of voters in an Iowa or New Hampshire very, very finely. And so to me, the basics of running a good campaign are heightened, heightened substantially because the margins are going to be thinner. There are just more people. Your candidates in 2016 and the kind of campaigns you ran uh, mechanically, messaging-wise, ideologically even, I'm curious, you know, football prospectus does this when when folks jump from the uh, NCAA ranks into the NFL, they do comps. Is there a comparison that any of you see at this early stage for your candidates in this 2020 field, somebody who you look at 
and you say, boy, they sort of remind me a little bit of the candidate I had in the sort of campaign we were running. Beth, start with you. Mm, I'm going to have to take a minute to think of that because it does not come to mind. Because what we had in what we were looking at was we had experience and um, and not only at the state level, popular uh, governor of a big, diverse state. And we had 18 years of uh, congressional experience. So we had and at the end of the day, he was a Midwestern populist and he was a good communicator. So that was that was the package we have. And I don't see that, obviously, in the, so in the Democrat my, I think myself. A, a better question might mm-hmm. be no. if you ask each of who we see. Well, now you've taken well, shots no. at everybody, huh? Hey, better question. Somebody take, bartenders in there. Go yeah. Somebody take the picture of no, the two wait, empty glasses in front of them. The better question might be, how do we see each other's? Because we're, none of us are going to say, oh, this was our candidate because our candidate was unique and it was special sure. and it was this. I mean, I can say, look, John Kasich is Elizabeth Warren has zero chance of winning and a hundred percent chance of spoiling another candidate. Oh, okay. That's actually oh, a better game. Right? I, I dig that, See? Terry. Okay. <laughs> well, and I already made the Biden Bush comp. What do you think, Danny? Is there are, I mean, are any are any of these folks reminding you that's of... e- that's easy for me. Yeah. Um, quite obviously because he wears the way to be in the front runner out of the gate. I, I do notice um um and I have to put a kind of caveat on this because they're very different people, but Warren has placed a premium on policy and ideas, um, at least thus far in, in her effort. And and we played our candidate's strength, which was ideas and policies and experience, much like Beth was mentioning. And, and I see her doing that once again with the caveat that they couldn't be more different. What do you think, Jeff? Anybody reminds you? I got Cruz Jeb and Joe, point? Cruz Sanders, Kasich Bullock. And Rubio Harris. Kasich Bullock. Walk us through that. So it's just a, he's like a, uh, um, a genteel governor who talked a lot about being governor. Bullock's talking a lot about being governor. It used to be the path to to um, salvation to be president is your governor, not senator. He has a he's a moderate um, and he's going to try this kind of statesman route, which there's not a lot of oxygen for. Outside right. your own state. So, Jeff, you talked about Kamala Harris, in your opinion, being the best political athlete in the field. So my question to you all is, as you examine the folks in the field, not just those five or six who are high in the polls, but but everybody in the field, whether they're underperforming or overperforming at this particular point in the race, who do you view as the best pure political athlete in the field, the person whose campaign you would want to manage just based on raw political talent? Possibly Kamala Harris. Possibly Kamala Harris. Danny? I mean, I'm I'm conflicted in the answer for this reason. I think the mayor thus far has vastly exceeded expectations. Um, I question the durability of that. I was going to say the same. Yeah. A and B. Um, it's very hard for me not to answer the question with the person who took the Clinton operation to the like you know two minutes left in the fourth quarter. Um, he has the organization built in. He has the message built in. He has the money built in. And he has kind of a lot of energy on his side. These are people who believe they were jilted. And he has a strong, strong message, as we talked about super delegates and the establishment running the process and whatnot, to push that button, push it with a high degree of frequency, and yield a response that is favorable to his, his side. What do you say, Terry? You, I mean, you already had the best athlete in 16, and just as he screwed it up. So. <laughs> right, right, right. I know. Just make um, sure that makes it into the podcast, right, please. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, look, 
I think there are, in my opinion, two that are exceptional candidates. And the two that are exceptional candidates are going to surprise you. One, Joe Biden. Like, at the end of the day, the knock on Joe Biden is that he, he's an old guy and he says stupid things. This general election is genetically engineered for Joe Biden because he won't be the oldest guy and he no way in hell is he saying the stupidest things. So, like, he is, Donald Trump is a match made in heaven for him. I mean, he's a good politician and he's designed for this race. He appeals to that disenfranchised Archie Bunker. Like, he, he, can, he can win those back and from, from Trump. And then I think the other is going to surprise everybody. It's Cory Booker. Not out of anything he's done so far, but, but I mean, he's a damn good candidate back to when he was mayor of Newark. You don't forget those type of things. The media may move on because he doesn't seem as sexy at the moment, but I think he might have some ability to really kick it into next, next gear, you know? And I think Camilla Harris is, is going to go the distance. Um, the uh, African-American community is the single biggest block in the Democrat nominating process full stop uh, especially by virtue of the new primary calendar the way that it's organized but, but, but i mean not I mean, who cares what order i mean just like raw vote totals it matters the question becomes in the race is can biden wrestle enough african-american votes away from camilla or does does she win it by by overperforming with african-americans but also doing really well with with the rest and of as of today he's doing it in south carolina right i know that's mm-hmm. what i'm saying that's mm-hmm. but it's that's what i'm saying is that's why i put him as best candidate and biden knows that basically his nomination largely depends on his ability to communicate with african-american voters specifically in the south so let's talk about biden a little bit uh obviously he is treated in some quarters of the democratic party as a front runner if not a prohibitive front runner uh, for some of the reasons that you all were, were mentioning this is a guy who's combination of name ID, big donor support, establishment backing sort of cast a shadow over the rest of the field. But I think the doubts come into play when we get to this discussion about is he in step with today's Democratic Party? And Danny, obviously, that was the concern that wound up manifesting itself with Jeb Bush four years earlier. Same thing, big name ID, big money, had all the organization, the establishment backing in the world. But at the end of the day, it became clear as the campaign went on that he was sort of temperamentally and substantively not in step with large portions of the Republican base. When you look at the Biden campaign, and just in the last week as we saw his sort of flip-flop flip on the Hyde Amendment and how poorly that was handled, what is your advice to them? What's the single warning you would give the Biden campaign so that they don't suffer the fate that, that Jeb Bush did four years earlier? Well, look, I think you have to have, as I said earlier, like a theory of the race. And you have to you have to pursue that. And um, from his standpoint, he's wearing the colors of the front runner. Okay, so he's on a stage with nine other people who have every advantage. There's one commonality among those nine, and it's bringing him down. And and he's got to navigate kind of that piece. But what does he have working for him? He has working for him once again March third. All right. You got, what is it, like 13 states? Um, half of the delegates are almost decided in Texas and California alone. And he can run a big campaign. He can run a well-financed campaign. He's got a pretty good foil. He's got a pretty good foil in the president of the United States. And, and, and he understands that. He needs to maintain continuity. 
That is his goal. And the longer he maintains continuity, the more of the doubters and otherwise he brings into the fold. And what works against him is he's been around forever. He has said things, voted on things, and done things that he doesn't recollect. And all of those are going to come to bear. He's he's a 747 that is tough to get off the ground, but once once it gets off the runway and clears the trees, it's tough to bring it down. And and that will be key for him. Is you, you say continuity, and I say it's almost remaining presidential. Just stay above the to the extent that you can stay above the rest of that fray and not get dragged into that. That is his winning ticket. Well, you all have spent the last few years licking your wounds, and I'm sure losing a couple of. Nights of sleep over. Well, the reason why Casey didn't didn't feel like a loss is because he never dropped out. I was just gonna say, <laughs> he's still he's just suspended. Right. Right. So I'm sure that it has crossed all of your minds more than once. Beth, you know you're the nicest person here. You should just feel free to take a shot at these <laughs> yes. guys whenever whenever you'd like. But oh, they did when they kept robbing us of delegates, <laughs> lined us all up, right. and lined when they were going to drop out. Uh, yeah, Rubio uh, still thinks Virginia should have been his. I know uh, twenty-eight thousand votes <laughs> out of a million we lost by John Kasich managed ninety thousand. Congratulations on Minnesota, Minnesota, yeah. which was called yeah. so late that nobody gave, gave a shit anyway. Right? <laughs> Puerto Rico and DC as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I'm sure that you all have wondered, as have your bosses then bosses, what could have been done differently to defeat Donald Trump? And I'm wondering that as you've reflected on the 2016 campaign and you look ahead to his reelect in 2020, if you're sitting here analyzing how he can be defeated in a general election in 2020, because we know he ain't going to get a primary challenge, uh, a real one, is there a weakness to Donald Trump that was not exploited during the 2016 campaign that has become more apparent to any of you since and that you believe that the right Democrat with the right message and the right sort of tactical approach could exploit in this next general election campaign? Look, I'll, I'll take a shot at this. Um, you look at the state polling, national polling's great, that's fine. Look at the state polling, um, which is kind of the better barometer here, you know, the Rust Belt. I mean, it's kind of like Johnny Obvious, but um, Pennsylvania, what specifically Wisconsin, what specifically Michigan. And I think um, kind of that blue-collar voter, to Terry's point, that didn't show up for Hillary. Um, you know, you can malign these people all they want. Uh, they're Obama, Trump yep. voters. Absolutely. And um, that's kind of what's in play there. And the question is, you know, and look, there's a valid argument that kind of a, a Bernie Sanders inspires them to some degree. There's a valid argument that a Joe Biden, um, because of what he represents, um, can appeal to those folks. There are a lot of people in the Democratic Party right now that are asking, like, where do I fit? Like, w w how do I fit into this scheme at the moment? And I think the Trump team um, understands that, and they are laser-focused on that. To me, that's the play. Do you guys yeah, disagree? I, I completely agree. Look, it, it is and – it's, and it's actually two interesting groups. It's the, the blue-collar Rust Belt folks, but it's also the suburbanite Rust Belt folks who, who think, you know what, I couldn't ever vote for Hillary Clinton. I don't want to vote for Donald Trump. I, I did just because it's anti-Hillary. But you know what? If it's a 
maybe a Mayor Pete or a Joe Biden or somebody that you can just hold your nose as a suburban, probably soft Republican and vote for. Those are the two things that he's really got to worry about. Because they all just did last November. Yeah, one other point. One other point. One other point. You had had presidential level turnout across the board, and Michigan elected a Democrat governor. And Wisconsin elected a Democrat. And, and I expect you're going to have record turnout this time. I think it's going to be higher than, than I mean, it's trended up. Quickly on the Rust Belt, because these are my people and I feel the need to speak up for them. What was the high watermark of Democratic enthusiasm in 2016? March 8th, Bernie Sanders down 20 points in Michigan, wins that primary. And when you look at the exits there, it was astonishing how he beat her. Bernie Sanders essentially negates Trump's arguments on things like trade. Bernie Sanders was against NAFTA way before Trump was, right? Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have the exact same fiscal policy. Right. Period. For folks who are riding around in a bus in New Hampshire in the primary, you went up past the Boston DMA, and what did you see? Two right. things, a Trump sign and a Sanders sign. Yep. That's exactly right. So I want to wrap up a little mini lightning round here. I'm going to ask you all for the same question, and I'm going to start with a sentence. I want you to complete it for me. Democrats win back the White House in 2020 if? They can get out of their own way. They can get out of their own way in what sense? Look, Donald Trump can win when he makes it about his opponents and their weakness. Like you said, like, how do you beat Donald Trump? The way to beat Donald Trump is make Donald Trump the issue, not you. And so he's got this... uh, this approach to dragging you down in the mud pit with him make him the make him the issue and not you and you can rise above it i mean i just i say rise above it that's that's not a good but like i think the trick is is trump is his own worst enemy don't get in the way of that i'm gonna take a different tact here um somebody who can get in the ring with what is a prize great prize fighter and who can kind of manage him and deal with him and deal with the counterpunch because um, he is a great political athlete and he will find that weakness. He will exploit that weakness and he will he will take advantage of it to the greatest degree possible. Beth, you're nodding. Yeah, I, I think that the Democrats are going to win when they can find somebody who can get in the ring. But importantly, at the same time, that they're not going to be distracted and they're not going to take the bait. They are going to win if they are able to get into the ring and fight. But at the same time, convince people that they care about them, that they are authentic, that they are going to. It's going to have to be something different. It cannot be that I'm going to be like the policies and programs of Donald Trump. It's going to have to be something different. And if they can articulate something different and make it authentic and something that resonates with people and stay in the ring without getting distracted, they will win. Jeff, Democrats win back the White House if? Um, I think history holds on this. I know we're in new times and we're trying to think about things in, in ways because everything's changed in the last 10 years. But I think all the all the um, normal, the normalcy of politics holds, which is you don't lose reelection unless the economy is a mess. So I think they need two things. One, they need the, the economy to take a downturn and they need a message of what their candidacy would change. He's taken very populist outside the norm Republican positions that the Republicans will accept because he's doing so much for them. And because he's a standard bearer and he fights the Democrats every day, every single day, frankly, they would have to have both. They would have to have an economic downturn 
and they'd have to have an overwhelming message that 51% could get behind. Actually, you know, of 51% of the electoral college, they, they'll probably win the, the, the general pop vote. But I don't see anybody that does that if this continues the way it is. You just don't lose. Those that that math holds up. That's why we all thought we were run. It didn't matter. Hillary was the worst in the history of the yeah, world. I, I think th- it was only a hundred thousand votes. I get all that, but we, a Republican was going to win last time. I think any of our people pains me to say, even Jim, Kasich I, I think probably so would have won out the window now. Like you can't. I say, think that's the, that's the other argument. Right. I just believe that history holds. To defeat somebody, something has to be wrong. To defeat agree, to defeat an incumbent. To defeat an incumbent. Something has to be wrong, and nothing's wrong. Right, but so much has gone out the window in the past five years that I don't know that I can say, "Hey, these past." I just it is very matter. dangerous to judge this, like viewing it through the prism of a referendum. It's not a referendum. Not it, it is like a big, big mistake. It is a choice, and I get back to my kind of two people in the ring with a prize fighter. But so when you say nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong on paper, right? But in November of 2018, you have all of these suburban seats that have been held by Republicans for 10, 20, 30, 40 years from from the Salt Lake suburbs to the suburbs of Atlanta and Detroit, right, where you have all of these congressional seats flipping. So clearly, and that's while the economy is booming, so clearly some individuals, including a lot of longtime traditional Republican right. voters, did believe that something by, was wrong. I was going to say, that's by, the thing, it's yeah, very okay. anti-establishment, and that's the thing that I think is different. And that it's I mean, trendy. Ronald Reagan had some tough every midterms, time, every and time. he did sure. pretty First, well. The First biggest, president's so the biggest, the, there's, two, there's two deltas in politics. I know Donald the Trump. The biggest delta. I've seen him on TV. And Donald Trump is no Ronald Reagan. And I, never, <laughs> said, and I never said he was. The delta, I'm, I'm the delta between a commitment, there's two big right deltas here. in politics. The delta between <laughs> a commitment and a check arriving, that's a huge delta. Politicians a lot of times don't get that. The second delta is between a referendum on a candidate versus a choice. That's right. Sure. And the referendum against any president who all won reelect, all except for two, and is, is the choice creates an entire different prism to view it through. Mm-hmm. You're all tasked with, in a hypothetical universe, of course, you're all tasked with getting Donald Trump reelected. You are Brad Parscale. It's your job to get him another four years in the White House. Who is the one Democratic candidate you do not want to see next November? Beth, start with you. I think Mayor Pete. If Mayor Pete takes off, and I, I'm not sure that he has got um, enough experience um, as a mayor. I'm not sure he has enough experience, but if he takes off, I think that is a very difficult race for him. Danny? I mean, I want to say Joe Biden because it's like the easy answer to give. Um, but kind of um, I also want to say Bernie Sanders. And I, I want to say, despite being kind of, quote, wrong on a lot of issues, he brings into play a dynamic that I think is kind of interesting from a general election perspective, to be very honest with you. Terry? I don't agree, disagree with Danny, uh, other than I wouldn't work for Donald Trump. I have a conscience. Can I add one thing? Can I add one thing? Once again, the sleeper, the sleeper, Kamala Harris. Yeah, I think, I think she's real. That's it for Off Message. Thank you for listening. Also, Ted Cruz for 2024 is an interesting question. I'm glad you asked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Jenny Ament, and to our executive producer, Dave Shaw. So uh, I think he, I think Biden got his powder. I think I think Biden got his Canadian citizenship. I think it's all worked out. I thought that was a, you do agree with the president on something. 
and stand by for another great episode of Off Message coming your way soon. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's already done it. It's question number. Part B before the record.